if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Esther one more time. Esther chapter 9, we're going to read some verses, we're going to skip down, we're going to read, uh, I'll let you know where we're going. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Esther 9, beginning in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps, the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Skip down to verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned For them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Let's get down to 10 verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, the full account the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was the second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Would you help us as we again see reversals? We again see your hand at work mightily. Most of all, Lord, in all of these, may we see Christ, our Savior, our King, the one that we need. Lord, would you show us our need? And then may we fly to you by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. From chapter 3, we saw letters and couriers going out with the instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the, the 13th of the month, Adar, and plunder all their goods. A holocaust had been ordered. 
the Jews were to die at the command of Haman. So, so far, we've seen terrible things in Esther. Horrible. The drunken leadership of a king who seems just utterly blown away by his own desires, his own appetites rule over him. 180-day feast, who does that? We saw his appetite didn't stop with food and drink, but for building this harem of young, beautiful virgins from all over the land, having them come in. We kind of already see the bare edges of it because Esther is beautiful, and we know where the story is going. And sure enough, she's not just chosen to be in the harem. From the harem, she's chosen to be queen. This king is leveraging all his power and influence. And all of that is brought to bear in Haman. Haman gets chosen first, and, and he takes all this power of the, the king and all the land, and he, he turns it against the people of God, against the Jews. We see Mordecai in sackcloth and Aster. And ashes, and we see Esther hearing the news, and she, she calls for a three-day fast, and and then we see all these things getting reversed. Esther doesn't die; she lives. But she goes into the presence of the king. The death of Mordecai had been planned, but because of the king's sleepless night, not only does he not die, he gets richly rewarded by the one who was trying to have him killed. Esther, who has remained silent for so long, now speaks, and Haman is hung on his own gallows. Mordecai is now in charge. He is in power. The question is still hanging over their heads, though. What's going to happen when the king's edict comes into effect? All the land had been told, kill all the Jews, wipe them out. What's going to happen? Mordecai hurriedly, speedily put together this other plan to tell all the Jews in the land that they could gather and defend themselves from those who want them dead. The Jews are delivered. And not only that, in this section we see that their enemies are destroyed. If we've been paying close attention in Esther, it's full of moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity. There's more in these chapters, and it shouldn't surprise us. This scene is bloody with lots of death. And not just death, but also public hanging of all ten of Haman's sons. There's the death of hundreds, thousands throughout the empire. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of all these reversals? I think we're being pointed yet again into a, a certain direction. From the roll of the dice, you remember that? When Haman cast the poor to see which day he would choose? Mere chance we're being invited in to something else in Esther. In these closing chapters, we're being pointed from these earthly realities, we're being pointed to greater cosmic reversals. 
for the people of God and the church. From the sentence of death to crushing the serpent's head, from dice being rolled to dice being the theme of the party. From a bad king to a perfect king. First, this first reversal is from death sentence to crushing the serpent's head. We remember, again, the command was to destroy, to annihilate, to kill. The decree says in chapter 8, the, the king allowed all of this, but then he says, hey, gather yourself together and fight. And they do. Verse 1 tells us the time had finally come. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. For the last two weeks, we've seen these micro-reversals. This one is massive. All the provinces of Persia, all the people saved, people who were condemned to die, suddenly not only living, but annihilating their enemies. Notice verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them, and no one could stand against them. Fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Haman wasn't the only person in Persia who hated the Jews. And when this edict had gone out, death had been planned. And suddenly all those plans go out the window and the Jews are saved. 500 men were killed in Susa. In verse 16, we're told that this happened across the Persian Empire. And they got relief from their enemies, 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. We'll come back to that in a minute. Not only were the people of God not being destroyed, but they were crushing their enemies all over the place. The king, far from being put off by the events as they unfold, seemed pleased. It's a really interesting interaction that he has with Esther. He says, hey, 500 men are dead in Susa. What else should we do? What else would you like? He offers her another wish, and she gives a, she gives a kind of a grisly wish. What is she, do you remember what she said? She said, yeah, give us a, a couple more days to get the work done. There's more killing that needs to happen. Is this a bloodthirsty people taking over the empire? While the king just looks on, is Esther bloodthirsty? Notice verse 10 and 15 and 16, how the conflict is presented. Verse 10, they killed the sons of Haman, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they killed more than 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16, throughout the empire, they killed 75,000 men, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Anytime you see this in scripture, you're reading along and the same thing comes up again and again and again. You need to pay attention. Something's going on here. Something for us to learn. Why does the text keep repeating that? The people of God would recognize that this was not about physical gain. This was about their very lives being spared, but not them growing rich or profiting from killing of their enemies. 
It's referenced again and again and again about plunder because this is what God's people were to do. We see it all the way back in Genesis 14. You remember when Abraham went out to war and he won this victory and he was offered plunder and he said, no, I can't take it. Because you being my enemy might think that you have enriched me or that I somehow did this warfare to to get rich. I'm not going to do it. We see it again as the people of God move in in conquest to the land of Canaan. We remember this war against Jericho. It was divine warfare and the people weren't to take anything. God utterly wipes the city walls out and they leave and head to the next city. And do you know what happened there? They lose. Do you remember why? Because Achan had taken something that didn't belong to him as plunder. Now let's jump back into our text. We have Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, the first king of Israel. And we remember Saul's record. This should make sense to all of us. Saul was told to defend Israel from the Amalekites and their king, Agag. Remember Haman? Haman the Agagite? So you have a descendant of Saul, and you have Haman the Agagite, and we're meant to go all the way back to that story, all the way back there in 1 Samuel when all these events unfold in the life of Saul. He was told to wipe the Amalekites out, kill them all, and he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Samuel goes to check out the scene and he gets there and says this, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and this lowing of oxen that I hear? Why do I hear sheep and cows and why is Agag still alive? In other words, Saul, you haven't done what you were supposed to do. Saul was looking to profit and plunder. He disobeyed God's rules of war and protection of his people. Where there was failure in the past, I think Esther is saying, look, now it's being accomplished. No plunder, simply obeying God. All of this in in Esther, all of these reversals have to, again, have Genesis chapter three ringing in our ears, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That's what's going on in this bloody chapter, Esther chapter 9, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Embedded in that promise is that warfare is going to continue between the the people of God and the sinful world. We see seeds of it everywhere. Cain versus Abel. Esau versus Isaac, Ishmael versus Jacob, Israel versus Egypt, Israel versus the Philistines, Israel versus the Amalekites, David versus Goliath, Daniel versus lions. It's everywhere. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at war time and time again since the Garden of Eden. The people of God have been threatened time and time again. The people of God have been spared by God's grace. The final expression of this divine warfare is found in Christ himself. Christ himself, the divine warrior who comes to conquer Satan and the curse itself to give us life. But he he wins by giving up his life. 
He wins by dying in our place. He conquers. Our glorious king comes and conquers, not by killing, but by dying. Christ is victorious, but his victory came at the cost, again, of his, his own life. He laid down his life so that the powers of Satan and hell would be put to open shame from our New Testament lesson Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put all his enemies to open shame by dying on a cross. Just as Haman and his sons had died and were made a spectacle, hang them all up on this insanely high gallows. Our Lord Jesus Christ was also hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a curse in the, in the law. He received a curse not because he deserved it. He received a curse because you and I deserved it. And as the Son of God, he came to take it in our place. Throughout Esther, throughout this whole book, we we see this this battle going on, this contest of the spirit of God who's behind the scenes and the spirit of evil wanting to wipe a whole people group out. Do we see the reality of spiritual warfare is ongoing in our lives today? Not that we take up arms as a church and, and run out and, you know, not like that. The reality that our lives are lived in a spiritual world that is still at war. Do you realize that there are institutions, cultural realities that utterly hate this? They utterly hate what we're doing this morning. How many of us, I wonder, realize that we actually do live in a spiritual world with a spiritual battle raging? What has been your experience with that as a Christian? Have you experienced that? Or has everything just been great? No bad days. No, being a Christian is hard. It's a spiritual battle. We battle with those around us. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that may be able to stand against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, it's one thing to look at spiritual warfare in times gone past, look at it in Esther 9. It's another thing to look at the realities of it in your own life. Your battle with sin, besetting sin, your, your full onslaught against what your heart is telling you to do, if that heart is telling you to do sin, it's a spiritual battle. Our struggle is real, and yet we fight knowing the battle has already been won. Jesus has won. Our King has gone before us. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
What's the message for us? What's the lesson? Keep going. Keep believing the gospel. Remember the promises of God. Fight the good fight. It is worth it. Don't give up. Don't give in. Believe. Have hope. God is sparing his people. You'll be setting sin within you and around you. And the world feels insurmountable. Don't stop flying to Christ. Don't stop asking. Don't stop knocking. Though it might seem hopeless, the lesson of Esther, though you might not see the hand of God directly at work, He is at work. He is moving in our world. He is at work. I love Philippians 2 as a way to view this battle with sanctification, the spiritual realities of it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is how to fight as a Christian. Work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You're like, who's doing what? Both. Both. Fight. Believe, trust, and know that God is at work in you. It's not one or the other. You're not called to go it alone. It's both. Keep going, keep fighting. God is at work in you. Our next reversal from dice being rolled for death to dice being the theme of the celebration. It's one of my favorite reversals because it's so poetic. You remember Haman rolling, casting the poor time and time and time again until he reaches this date. Look, it's just mere chance. Esther 9, 22, the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that they had been turned from them, sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness for the sending of gifts to one another, giving to the poor. It's the Feast of Purim. You can see the whole of Esther through the lens of rolling the dice. You can see the whole book along those rails. Haman rolls the dice and we're going to wipe all the Jews out on this day. And you're like, clearly it's just a roll of the dice. God is not at work. And then as time goes on, you realize that actually God is in control of the dice. He, God actually picked the day. And not only are the Jews not going to be wiped out, now it's going to be a Jewish holiday to, for, for God's providence to be celebrated. A holiday named dice. Isn't that a, a, astonishing? Isn't that amazing? God clearly isn't at work. He's clearly not doing anything. We're just going to roll the dice. And then it, it is ultimately proven that, no, he's in control of everything. Every molecule. He's in control. No random chance. What lessons can we learn from this massive reversal from, from death and this random looking event to life and feast and party, celebration. What lessons are held for 
out for us as we live life in exile, I would say this. You won't always see God's providence. God is at work. It's a major lesson of Esther. He's at work whether you see him or not. But when you see his providence in your life, celebrate it. Remember it. Rejoice in it. When you have seen his hand move in ways that you could not produce, celebrate. Throw a party. Invite me. I'll come. Celebrate what God has done. Remember what he's done. Remember those, those crazy things that you, 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 you couldn't do anything about and God changes and you're taken from darkness to light. Remember and celebrate. Throw a party. Tell somebody. We're going to have a feast called Dice. Isn't that great? There's another application. Um, we're, we're given this word. Um, the, the children of Israel under threat. After this violent day, it says that they were given rest. They were given a respite from their enemies. So there's really two things in this reversal that we need to consider. The first is celebrate. The next is rest. What are the people of God to do now that Christ has done everything for us? There's nothing for us to do. What are we to do? Rest. Rest from your work. It's not your effort. Rest in Christ. Rest in his providence. Every single time they had Purim, this this dice feast, they were remembering that God had spared them. And they now had rest from their enemies. Far from worrying about who's wanting to kill them tomorrow, that was gone. It was utterly done. And that's a lot like our salvation in Christ. There's nothing left for you to do. Rest. Practically, good job. You're, you're all a part of that today. You're here on the Lord's Day worshiping. You're expressing that very reality today. Do it in your home. Rest in Him, knowing that the gospel is true for you today. Celebrate, child of God. Celebrate salvation. Celebrate the providence of God and rest in Christ. From all your enemies, rest. In Christ, we find that rest. In Christ, we find that reason to sing. Why do we get together and sing every Sunday? It's so weird. We have reason to sing. Our Savior has come, lived in our place, and died, and death did not hold him, but he, he was raised up. In Christ, we have reason to fellowship with brothers and sisters and to celebrate God's hand at work. In Christ, we have, have been invited to feast at his table every Lord's Day. We, we gather to feast. This, this sacrament is a celebration of Christ. And a tiny little cup of a down payment of a great feast. All of history is going to this great feast. Us with our Lord. Celebrate. He is worth it. 
Now for our last reversal, this one points us ahead, not backward from this bad king to a first, uh, to a, an amazing king, to a, a perfect king. Look at verse one, it's hilarious. Just reading along, it's fantastic. Verse one, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Of course there's something about taxes in Esther. What in the world is going on? Why in the world would the narrator talk about the king and taxes? I guess that he, like us, thinks that there's one sure thing in life, taxes. And I think we're being reminded of this. Right at the end of Esther, Mordecai is great. Okay? The rest of the next two verses are going to be Mordecai is great. But verse 1 lets us know he's not the king. Mordecai's good, and he's got lots of power, and he, he, he's great in the land, but he is not the king, and you're still left with a king who is wicked. And King Ahasuerus has not changed. He likes his taxes because he likes to party. That's what we're being told. Right here at the end, we're, we're being told Ahasuerus is still the king. Mordecai is great. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Esther has been great. Mordecai has been great. The Lord has used their stories and their lives in incredible ways. But they're not the king. They're not the ruler. The king who was coming in Christ is the king ultimately needed. And I think the narrator right at the end is giving us this snapshot. Things may be good, but they're not perfect. The people of God are okay for now, but more is needed. And that more is coming in the person and work of Christ. The king who was coming would be the perfect king who would still a raging storm with a word, who would feed thousands with very little, who would speak truth to power like no other human being who's ever lived in all of history. This king who was coming would heal the lame, restore sight to the blind. This coming king came and preached Peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. This king would destroy the enemy. Not Jew-Gentile conflict. Not insider-outsider. The last enemy. Death. Hell. The king who was coming would be a perfect king. The message at the end of Esther, King Ahasuerus is still king, Mordecai is great, but child of God, we know that we need more. This king is over, like, taxing all his lands, and we're reminded at the very end of Esther, we need a king. We need a better king. We need somebody better even than Mordecai, as great as he became in Persia. We need one better. We need Jesus.
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the king we need. We need a king who is ruling and reigning all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whether we see him at, at work or not whether we directly see that hand of providence or we don't, he is at work. I think there's some great lessons in Esther, but I think one of, the, one of the important lessons is this. Imperfect people are everywhere. Fallen, really broken people are everywhere. You have imperfect friends. You have Imperfect parents, imperfect bosses, imperfect spouses, imperfect kids, imperfect politicians, imperfect teachers, imperfect pastor, imperfect elders, imperfect deacons. All of this should serve to get our attention And turn our souls to our perfect king. He is seated at the right hand of God and never lives to intercede for his people. So imperfect people, turn your eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Esther. We thank you for the time that we have had in it. Lord, would you shape us in these truths today? Whether we see your hand at work in our lives or not, maybe remember the lesson of Esther, that your hand is at work. And we we think everything is chance and the roll of a dice. We realize that you are in control of every single molecule. Remind us of that, Lord, and so give us hope. May we be a people marked by celebration and rest because the gospel is true. Would you do this in all of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.